Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. population, certainly not uh, people as nice as the Afghans deserve to go through what they have in the last 40 years. There are now two or three generations who've seen nothing other than war and conflict. The gains of Afghanistan, democracy, uh, institutions, of, uh, women's rights, all of that are being frittered away now. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. The comments you just heard were from India's High Commissioner to Australia, Manpreet Vohra. In this program, he joins Professor Rory Medcalf for the latest instalment of our Security Summit series. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Welcome, High Commissioner Manpreet Vora, the uh, the High Commissioner of uh, India to Australia. It's fantastic to have you on the program, uh, especially ahead of Indian Independence Day. Thank you, Rory. It's a pleasure for me to be here, and uh, thank you for thinking of this uh, just prior to uh, the seventy fifth anniversary of our Independence Day. So, there's so many things we could talk about, and, uh, and and my friends and colleagues know that I take a great interest in India, uh, but I'm determined not to disappear down too many of those very specialised avenues of thinking about India. I want, I want to focus really on three big questions in our conversation today. Um, and High Commissioner, the first really is about you, your, your career um, as an Indian diplomat which has um, really spanned, uh, you know, quite a wide range of, of countries, but also uh, a really important spread of, of recent history um, of uh, India's changing role in the world. And then, of course, uh, I'd love to move on to some questions about uh, India's place in the world, India's worldview, India's strategic challenges, and naturally the Australia-India relationship. But let's let's begin with you a little bit. I mean, your career as a, um, a foreign service officer, as a, uh, an officer of the Ministry of External Affairs, uh, since I think the um, the late 1980s, if, I, if I'm not um, sort of uh, aging you too much, um, has shown, I think, uh, a window on so much of the world. I'd love to hear a little bit from you about the perhaps the high points of your career and how perhaps it's affected your perception of India's place in the world. Uh, thank you, Rory. Uh, you have revealed my age, but I suppose I don't have any way of hiding it. Um, this coming Monday, the 16th of uh, August, will be 33 years since I joined the Indian Foreign Service. A uh, quick recap on my uh, journey. I started it in Hong Kong. Uh, I learned uh, Chinese language there. Then I went and worked for four years in Shanghai. After that, I've worked in Mongolia. I've worked in the UK. 
and then in Kenya and Pakistan. Then I got my first ambassadorship, which was to Peru, followed by ambassador to Afghanistan, uh, and then ambassador to uh, Mexico, from where I'm coming now as High Commissioner to Australia. So it's been a fascinating journey uh, in terms of uh, the range of experience I've obtained, the different regions uh, and every continent that now I've been fortunate enough to live and work in. It's been fascinating, I must say. Um, in terms of what has been the high points, I have to say that the time spent in my neighborhood has been the high point, really. Uh, my posting to Afghanistan uh, was uh, nothing like I've ever done before or since. Uh, my time in Pakistan, uh, I was the deputy high commissioner there, was also during a, a period of intense uh, activities in Pakistan and uh, an amazing oscillation of the India-Pakistan relationship. When I reached there, the relationship was at a big high and then it uh, sunk to very low depths because of the Mumbai attacks. I was there when that happened. Um, and uh, then, of course, uh, my time in China, which was at an early point in my career, my formative years, was also very, very good. So I've had uh, uh, some good uh, experiences, some good challenges, but it's been fascinating throughout. Well, one important signal from all of that, I think, is um, to uh, friends and colleagues around Australia to show that uh, the Indian government is um, sending some um, uh, some very seasoned, uh, experienced diplomats who who to this country who, who've got a um, a very clear sense of India's place in a changing world. Um, but I would like to come back to Afghanistan, if you don't mind, because your experience there. Uh, was it's so often a very a very difficult and confronting time in Afghanistan. I know I know that your experience there was also during some pretty harrowing times for uh, India and Indians in Afghanistan. And you must be watching uh, with uh, some very strong emotions. I imagine what is occurring in Afghanistan now. Uh, if you could reflect a little on either your experience there or perhaps how you see the situation in Afghanistan today. Well, I have to say that uh, certainly for me, but I dare say perhaps for anyone who's really had the opportunity to serve in Afghanistan, be it a person in uniform, be it a civilian, be it a diplomat, uh, it is a fascinating country and they are very, very beautiful people, the Afghans. Uh, so really, in a sense, I think I personally uh, feel that uh, uh, life and uh, the world uh, has uh, dished them a very bad hand. No population, certainly not uh, people as nice as the Afghans, deserve to go through what they have in the last 40 years, unending really. There are now two or three generations alive and growing up who've seen nothing other than war and conflict and a pretty nasty one at that, very bloody, very difficult. Nobody really deserves that. And in a sense, uh, it is very disappointing that uh, things have not been sorted out there for so long. Uh, certainly uh, post what happened uh, in 2001, 9-11, and the return of Afghanistan to a normal mode of government and governance after the Taliban regime uh, had been overthrown, uh, that promised a lot. And there was a lot invested by almost the entire world in Afghanistan in terms of resources, in terms of personnel, 
but the focus uh, kept shifting the reality of what the real problem was uh, that was sustaining the war sustaining the taliban till today uh, in afghanistan uh, that was uh, while very well known and very well documented the problem over there was about sanctuaries and safe havens and if that was taken away from the taliban it would become an internal uh, issue within afghanistan for the afghans to sort out and it would have been sorted out by now uh, but everyone knows and acknowledges as i said it's well documented the the support system that the taliban have enjoyed for so many decades now and nobody's really focused on getting rid of that problem uh, and here we are then where uh, things are now much worse because the rest of the world much of the rest of the world has decided that they really can't afford to stay on any longer for various reasons they are now pulling out but they're pulling out without having put in place uh, an arrangement which could allow the gains of afghanistan democracy uh, institutions of uh, women's rights all of that are being frittered away now it's very very unfortunate really to see uh, what we have consciously in in all honesty the rest of the world has allowed afghanistan to descend into is there anything that you can um offer us by way of i guess how you see India's perspective or India's position on Afghanistan going forward. I know you're High Commissioner to Australia, but uh, nonetheless, uh, you know you clearly take a, a strong interest in what in what happens there. Uh, is there anything that we can expect about uh, the future of India's engagement in Afghanistan? Well, we, it, it is one of our most important neighbours. It is a neighbour with whom we have civilizational ties. Uh, it is a neighbor with whom till today we have extremely close relations uh, the afghans uh, love india as any poll repeatedly will show we in india love afghanistan we feel for them we try to do and continue to try to do as much as we can for them we've invested a lot in building institutions there in uh, developing uh, various uh, you know, things including schools and hospitals and roads and bridges we've done a lot there and uh, we would uh, continue of course uh, to be invested in afghanistan we would continue to help afghanistan but i hope that the conditions that are emerging or will emerge will permit us uh, to continue that sort of assistance to our afghan brothers and sisters so if we can if we can look uh elsewhere in the region or look look i guess more to the um uh the maritime indo-pacific region uh that, that australia is engaging with so so closely and that china is rising in it would be in- interesting also to maybe move now a little to what you see as india's changing place in the world and india's strategic priorities in the indo-pacific to hear a sense from you of what you see as india's role in the Indo-Pacific and the uh, the relationships uh, that India is having to navigate in that space, whether it's uh, what appears to be uh, closer and closer ties to the United States or mistrust with China or or, or others. Well, uh, one fact is that uh, we do live in a difficult neighbourhood, uh, and there are uh, countries uh, who are not necessarily. Uh, cognizant of our interests over there. Uh, there, uh, we are also, uh, the reality is that we are also a very large country. We are a large economy. We are the largest democracy. Uh, we are uh, doing well for many years now. And to an extent, 
uh, among the various engines of global growth that exist, uh, India is one of them. The most recent uh, World Bank and IMF projections uh, show that India will remain the largest, uh, fastest growing economy, the fastest growing large economy in 2021 and 2022, um, which means that there are opportunities that we offer to everybody from the rise of India and the Indian economy, the huge market size we have, the needs that we have, uh, which offer both opportunities and challenges. And therefore, uh, our uh, extended neighborhood, which is very much the Indo-Pacific region, uh, comes in uh, very prominently in that. I think the rest of the Indo-Pacific uh, do look upon India uh, for all the positive attributes uh, it has, for all the opportunities it offers. And Australia is one of them. And I think the realization in Australia that they do need to diversify their markets, their import sources, that they need to go beyond being primary commodity exporters, have more value addition. Uh, that offers uh, wonderful opportunities for Australia, Australian businesses to partner uh, with India and Indian companies. I think it's a, it's a win-win situation where a lot can be achieved and uh, to the mutual benefit of both India and Australia. Let's come back to Australia and India in, in, in greater depth in a moment because I think there's, there's so many angles that we can and should explore there, whether it's economics, whether it's uh, defence, whether it's people-to-people -people ties. But in that broader regional context, um, if, if you're looking at a few measures or, or touch points for India's changing role in partnerships other than the Australia relationship, um, what are they? I mean, is this principally about India and China, India and the US, India and Japan? Uh, you know, how do you see that constellation? Well, I think the uh, democracies are coming together um, everywhere and uh, there's a very natural affinity and a natural partnership among democracies, which is why if you see at the India-US, India-Japan, India-Australia, India-Europe relationships um, and groupings within those relationships are fairly natural for all of us to come together because we think eye to eye on most issues. We think that uh, there are alternative methods of offering developmental models and doing business and conducting international relations, uh, which could be good uh, for the future stability, prosperity of the entire region. Uh, so these are important relationships, but they are natural partnerships. The realization that uh, these countries need to come together and do more is today heightened because the of the nature of the new rising challenges and threats and opportunities. What about China? I mean, you served in China uh, early in your career and at a very different time in um, in China's rise, China's emergence. And at the same time, you know, those of us who've looked perhaps at the India-China relationship over many years now and have uh, looked for, if you like, greater common cause or like-mindedness among, you know, the you know, the two great uh, civilizational uh, states and powers of, of Asia um, are also struck by the mistrust. We're also struck by the mistrust in the India-China relationship and the, the difficulty, the tension, which has worsened uh, the, the, the violence last year, of course, uh, in the Golan Valley, um, the 
I assume, sense in India that um, uh, with the the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, there are some question marks there, some very strong questions that have to be put to China. How do you see the China-India relationship uh, evolving? Well, you're right. Um, um, It is uh, today a difficult relationship. And uh, we were surprised by China's actions last year in eastern Ladakh and the Galwan Valley, which you mentioned. Uh, It need not have been so. Uh, If you go back in history, uh, we became uh, uh, an independent republic in 1947, and the People's Republic of China came into existence in 1949. And uh, that was, at that time, a very welcome uh, change in the geopolitical landscape of uh, Asia, these two large countries, as it were, uh, getting rid of colonialism. You know, uh, we saw eye to eye at that time. In fact, uh, we enunciated jointly principles of international relations, etc. cetera. Uh, but then, of course, things deteriorated for a while and uh, remained uh, mistrustful for a while. But then in the, in the late 1980s uh, onwards, we actually re-engaged with China uh, we agreed on certain principles to ensure peace and tranquility along our borders because they remain unsettled borders. They remain uh, places where you still do not agree on where the line is. But we agreed that those would be self- dealt with separately, but that need not stop us from moving ahead with other aspects of interaction and relations, including economic, including people-to-people links, investments. all right. And that worked very well. Uh, ever since uh, that uh, re-engagement started, it worked extremely well uh, till last year, as I said, when we were taken by surprise by uh, what uh, Chinese uh, did to us over there. And we still really do not have an explanation of why they did what they did. What is it that they were expecting to achieve? Today now, we are uh, engaged in uh, trying to disengage and uh, some of that is happening. This and, is disengagement of forces yes, along the border. Along yeah. the border, uh, you know, going back to where we were prior to the uh, aggressive actions of last year, the status quo ante, trying to restore that. Some success has been seen on certain locations in the last few months, some more left to be sorted out. We hope those can be. Uh, and uh, then we could perhaps uh, look at how to restore the relationship to its earlier level. But at the moment, uh, things are difficult. But at a larger strategic level, I mean, is it reasonable to sort of take the view that among the Indian population, there are fairly low levels of trust of China? Well, yes. uh, A lot was happening, as I said, post-1980, late 80s and the 90s. And uh, the relationship had gone a long way. As with almost every other country, it became one of the most important trading partnerships. Uh, You know, there was quite a bit happening. Uh, But yes, certainly, I think it would be correct to say that there's been a loss of trust by Indians, uh, particularly since uh, we do not know why what was done was done and why the boat was rocked, as it were. And uh, recovering trust uh, is always an uphill task. It takes time. But you are right. uh, There is that now. We'll be back after this short break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about... 
work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So looking at the, um, the future of India in the world, I mean, I think you spoke earlier about uh, projections or indeed um, not just projections but statistics, current statistics of, of economic growth in India. At the same time, you know, many of us who've looked very optimistically at India's growth over the years uh, have not always foreseen some of the, the problems and the stumbles that have occurred. And of course, this year and last year, the impact of COVID-19 and now, of course, the, the awful um, second wave of um, the Delta variant in India um, earlier this year, presumably has had a serious effect on India's economic outlook, at least in the short term, uh, as well as doing you know terrible public health harm, terrible harm to um, the lives and well-being of, of many Indians. How do you see India moving beyond this really difficult phase? Well, the Indian economy is uh, uh, actually has proved to be quite resilient. Uh, last year, uh, we had uh, two quarters when the COVID first started. So those six months post-March last year were difficult and we did have a contraction. But then the second, uh, the last two quarters uh, of the last financial year actually turned out to be uh, pretty good with the result that the net uh, decrease of growth was much less than what uh, could, has, could have been feared. Uh, again, uh, one quarter of this year when we had the second wave, uh, you know, will probably end up uh, with a certain uh, reduction of uh, GDP growth. But everyone uh, believes, including, as I said, independent projections by the World Bank and the, and the IMF, that we will be jumping back beginning now because the second wave is now be behind us. We have overcome it. And uh, we expect, according to those projections, to grow by uh, 8.5% uh, this year. Uh, and again, the same or similar next year. Uh, so the so the medium to long-term uh, prognosis for India remains healthy. As I said, it's a large economy. It's a resilient economy. Uh, domestic consumption is uh, really uh, steering a lot of the growth. And if uh, worldwide international tourism, which is very important for most countries, has taken a massive hit, uh, in India, domestic tourism uh, is making up for that in a, in a big way. Uh, so I think uh, overall, uh, we should be fine, barring the unforeseen, which a pandemic can always unleash on any one of us. Uh, but barring the unforeseen, barring more catastrophic waves or further mutations of the virus, which takes everyone by surprise, things should improve. 
We are doing very well on the vaccination front. We've already administered about 515 million jabs. That's well over half a billion jabs. About uh, 8% of our population is already double vaccinated and therefore hopefully fully safe. And a very large number, almost 50% are now have got at least their first jabs. By the end of this year, we we expect to achieve much more on the vaccination front. So I think uh, going forward, the prognosis is uh, not as bad as uh, one would imagine. You were in Delhi during that terrible time, though, March, April, May, I think, of this year. I mean, just for... Um, Australians or others listening to this podcast elsewhere in the world, um, how would you, I guess, compare the situation now? It's it's August 2021 to the situation of a few months ago uh, because it was looking very dire there for a while. It was. I actually uh, landed in Delhi in uh, late March uh, and things were fine. Uh, and uh, then within days, literally within days, uh, it became much worse. The daily rate of infections uh, started increasing. And by the time I left Delhi in late April to come here to Canberra, uh, things were pretty, pretty dire. You are absolutely right. I think what it shows is that uh, uh, we can't be off our guard uh, whether we are in India or Australia or anywhere else, no one can afford to be uh, take their eye off the ball, as it were. I think uh, precautionary measures remain necessary. Social distancing remains necessary. Vaccination, of course, has become now the most important thing to allow everybody, not just individual populations, but everyone all over the world, to be able to return to normal travel, work, tourism, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, so I think uh, there's a big uh, learning for me personally, and I'm sure I speak for most of my countrymen, uh, that we did take the uh, the eye off the ball. I think uh, we can justifiably be accused of that in the earlier part of this year. Uh, and then we had not uh, anticipated that the new mutations of the virus could hit us so bad. Uh, but as I said, uh, things are now uh, looking good again, and we hope that there will be no further waves. So there are a number of factors that um, make India pretty special in the eyes of the world, and I think that make India such an important part of the story of the 21st century. And one of those, of course, is, of course, is the, um, the scale of India's population and the, uh, the vast youth population of India, the fact that so much of the world's current and future workforce um, is Indian. So I guess that's one factor that uh, I think many of us look at when we're looking at the resilience of India in this, this situation. Um, another is democracy and the fact that India is the world's largest democracy and has so many democratic achievements that we can point to, um, uh, you know, even looking at the, um, the gargantuan human organisational um, feat that is the work of the Indian Electoral Commission. Um, each election cycle is a real marvel. Uh, Friends of India, whether it's in Australia or elsewhere, often also talk about like-mindedness in terms of values or principles or political systems. But having said all of that, you know, there has been scrutiny and criticism in the past few years about the character of Indian democracy, um, whether it is at risk. Um, it would be just worth hearing some thoughts from you on, uh, I guess, how India's friends in the world, other democracies can engage with India uh, when there are questions being raised about, about what Indian democracy looks like going forward. 
Well, the short answer is that no, there is no threat to Indian democracy. We will remain a robust, even if somewhat noisy democracy, but there is no threat to it. I think every Indian, every political party, every color of political opinion in India is wedded to democracy, is wedded to electoral politics. We have always had, and uh, I believe we will continue to have, uh, peaceful elections, peaceful transfer of power. You know, whoever wins, whoever loses, doesn't matter. Having said that, I think uh, uh, all societies, uh, even democratic societies, uh, are evolving. Uh, there are, uh, you know, thought processes, there are new ideas that come up, uh, there are new demands that come up sometimes from sections of people, uh, and they can be challenges, they can be opportunities. Uh, so democracies are always work in progress. I don't think there's anything which is static or perfect. Um, uh, we have, uh, as I said, our flaws, uh, but uh, there is certainly no threat to democracy as such. And I did note that uh, I think in the um, the recent visit to India by uh, the US uh, Secretary of, of State uh, Blinken uh, that uh, there was still an emphasis in the public statements of both governments on not only shared interests but also shared principles and, and, and values. So it sounds as if the the US government uh, and other uh, democratic governments around the world are, are, are looking at India in that way. Um, let's move to Australia-India relations because that's really the um, core of your, your your role, your your mission here in Canberra and, and across Australia. It would be great to hear in a little more depth what you see as the the progress and the promise of this relationship, uh, as well as perhaps some first impressions from your what four months here now in Australia. You know, when I was selected for this position. Uh, I was still in Mexico City, and that's uh, sometime last year. Uh, everyone told me that uh, this is a hugely important new relationship, uh, uh, which is uh, going to grow very, very rapidly and very, very fast. And that excited me, of course. But after I reached here, uh, I realized truly the extent of that belief and the extent of that effort that is going on on both sides on this relationship. It is truly a marvelously exciting time uh, to be here. Uh, it's a relationship that, as you know, has been upgraded to a comprehensive strategic partnership uh, almost exactly one year ago. And there is a lot happening across different uh, departments and agencies and organizations of the government. There's a lot happening between academic institutions, between research bodies, on various fronts, I must say. And um, going forward, I think uh, it's extremely, extremely important that we nurture this more. We actually realize the opportunities that we both believe they are and which are quite evident, uh, particularly on the economic front, on what we can and do more together. Uh, we are complementary economies. As I said a little earlier, Australia is uh, perhaps now realizing that it needs to restructure and reorganize the directions in which it looks at. And we offer a very large market. We offer uh, very stable rates of return for investors, uh, whether it's in manufacturing, whether it's simply in the stock market. Uh, we're doing extremely well. We will continue to do well. Uh, and uh, 
the scale of anything uh, that comes out of Australia, if it is commercialized in the Indian market, uh, you know, can make a lot of sense for those inventions and innovations. So I think on the on the research development partnerships, uh, a, a, a lot is uh, on the anvil and on offer. Uh, would you would you prioritize economics or security or society, or, or do you see those as you know, all, if you like, equal pillars of the relationship. Do you have a, a set of priorities here? Well, they're all important pillars of the relationship. Uh, but I dare say that uh, there is such a close meeting of minds at the moment on the security uh, aspect of uh, our region. Uh, we see eye to eye, we uh, cooperate and collaborate and uh, try and see how we can ensure that our region remains free, open, stable, prosperous, inclusive. Uh, so that I would take that as, uh, you know, relatively matured part of the relationship already, even though short, but already relatively matured. Now, on the economic front, I think uh, there's much more that needs to be done, while the realization of the potential and opportunity is there. I think uh, I need to find ways uh, of enthusing the actual uh, decision makers, which are the actual businesses and companies, uh, to do more, to invest more of time and effort in uh, building the relationships with each other, in then doing actual business with each other. COVID and travel restrictions do not help, uh, unfortunately, uh, but hopefully that's, that will be short-lived and we can uh, see a more, much more travel and interaction happening. I that will be my number one priority. I think we've got, we, we've got at the moment um, former Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott uh, over in India and it, it appears that his, his mission is very much about prioritising trade, um, uh, whether it's whether it's something that could be cl classed as a, a genuine free trade agreement or whether it's uh, a set of arrangements that, that point in that direction. Um, how much of this is about, if you like, Australian business identifying opportunities and being willing to um, dive into the Indian market? And, and to what extent is this about uh, changes to India's own economic settings? Well, uh, Mr. Abbott uh, was sent there as the special trade envoy by Prime Minister Scott Morrison. So his mission was really the mission of the government of Australia uh, to try and energize discussions on uh, further strengthening and putting in the enabling framework of a comprehensive economic cooperation agreement, uh, often called a free trade agreement in common parlance. Um, and that is something that uh, both sides are agreed makes sense. As I said, uh, we are complementary economies. So we've now re-engaged on those negotiations. We hope that um, uh, those negotiations can be progressed quickly, leading to uh, actual agreements within a reasonably short period of time. And uh, it, 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 of course, uh, shows the extent of possibilities to do more between the two of us. Uh, it also shows, as you hinted at, uh, at a rethink uh, within India of uh, 
seizing opportunities with partners and countries where there are clear complementarities and in this particular case there is so yes uh, there uh, there there could be structural changes there is reform uh, happening all the time in india certainly since the early 90s and in the last few years and particularly even in the last few weeks because our parliament is in session and there be new laws uh, that have been uh, put in place uh, there are structural reforms happening uh, there is more openness that is now available uh, i think therefore it's important for australia and australian businesses to shed their old perceptions of you know india being a difficult place to do business india being uh, inherently protectionist in nature uh, i think uh, it's a new india now there's a new thinking and while we will as any country would uh, uh, try and make sure that any negotiation leads to safeguarding of our core interests uh, there is nothing that is cast in stone that cannot be uh, looked at uh, if it makes sense to both sides can we put this in more i guess um concrete terms for uh listeners who don't know the australia india economic relationship well or 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 the shape of the indian economy what are some of the sectors or industries where you see the most promise um i guess including in um you know in 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 value adding areas on both sides well we uh, think that uh, one very very promising area and very promising even in a future or futuristic sense uh, is uh, the critical minerals and metals sector uh, australia is blessed with a lot of those uh, for some of those minerals and metals you are today and will remain the largest producer certainly also with the largest uh, uh, potential uh at the moment uh, australia is exporting most of the minerals and metals in their raw ore form uh and uh, that leads to a situation where uh, there's not much value addition happening over here that's happening elsewhere india's got a huge hunger for those uh, minerals and metals uh, the size of our market the size of our industry our plans uh, to go green our plans for e mobility electric vehicles our plans for uh, more uh, Uh, more a uh, role for solar power and hence the battery storage needed is is absolutely large uh, i feel there is uh, such a natural synergy there where uh, not only do we get those minerals and metals here but with the right partnerships and joint ventures the processing also gets done here in australia so australia gets much more value over here and then uh making taking advantage of our manufacturing capabilities our lower cost base uh it makes sense to then do final battery assemblies etc in india uh, it's a, it's it's a hugely uh, i think attractive proposition in my view and i'd be trying to do more there and it sounds to me that we're touching here on um on on uh security and environmental policy as well as uh, i guess pure economic policy so it, it, there's really a potential win-win or win-win-win there uh given that climate policies in both countries get questioned sometimes and and the question is asked whether our, our economic relationship is really going to remain you know focused on simply on commodities or oh, not at all i'm talking of uh, larger term economic security i'm talking of uh, structural changes here in australia as well where you know more value addition 
can be done it should be done uh, i think uh, uh, it uh, it doesn't require much to understand that if you could get uh, $20 instead of 2 uh, for your minerals and metals here you know that's uh, fantastic for australia and it'll be lovely for india because it will develop industry in india it will develop industry over here and it is so complementary let's um finish up the conversation on on people, on, on the societal links between our two countries. There's so much else that we could talk about, but I'd really be interested to hear your impression on the role of the community, uh, the, the very large and diverse uh, Australian community of Indian origin, uh, and the role of people-to-people ties more generally, which travel is precluding a little at the, a lot at the moment, but where I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of connections still happening. Yeah. Well, uh, the people-to-people links have uh, grown hugely, as you know, in recent years. Um, Australia is uh, no longer this mysterious place very, very far away uh, across the oceans. Um, I think uh, uh, cricket and the involvement of uh, Australian cricketers in the Indian Premier League as players, as coaches, as managers, as mentors has meant a lot. Uh, so Australia is very well uh, regarded and Australia and Australians are known um, by Indians. Over here, as I see it, uh, uh, you've got a very large uh, community now of uh, Australians of Indian heritage, Indian origin, over well over 700,000 now. They are doing extremely well over here. Uh, They are contributing a lot to the economy and to various other sectors of Australia. I'm very proud, uh, frankly, of what they've achieved over here. Uh, I've also heard from every Australian uh, official or politician that I have met how proud they are of the contributions of uh, Indian Australians over here. The other day in Queensland, I asked the Chief Justice of Queensland, I had called on her, and I asked her, I said, Your Honor, uh, if I may, uh, do would you remember the last time um, an Indian Australian was hauled up before your bench? A- and she actually thought for quite a while and said she couldn't remember. <laughs> uh, so this is a community which is uh, educated, uh, which is law-abiding, which uh, focuses on uh, you know uh, their professions, their careers, their businesses. They make good neighbors. And I think they bring a lot of color and diversity to what is uh, an expanding mosaic of multiculturalism here in Australia. You know, and I think I, I would certainly say that if Australia is uh, serious about its future in the Indo-Pacific, then I think our multicultural society should certainly reflect that um, that Indo-Pacific character, if you like. So I, I think it's been a really a really important story of Australia's development, particularly over the last over the last twenty years. Um, look, I'm going to um, wrap up our conversation on that on that note. I think, um, Your Excellency, it's been great speaking with you. Uh, wish you all the best with your uh, your mission and your ambitions here in Australia, and we look forward to welcoming you back at the National Security College. Thank you, Rory. It was wonderful to be able to speak with you and through you to your listeners. Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, And you've done this uh, on the eve of our Independence Day. Thank you for that. I wish you, the National Security College, all Australians, and certainly the Indian Australian community, a happy Independence Day. All my best wishes. Well, that's all for today. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the National Security Podcast and to give the show a rating wherever you listen. It helps us connect with new listeners. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.